According to Andrea Griffith, learning to forgive your spouse is difficult until you gain the right perspective. She says, you might be thinking, how do I do this? How do I forgive? How do I honor this person? How do I continue to show mercy? The only way that we can do this is we've got to lift our eyes up and see the blessing, see the forgiveness that God has given us. And then we can take that blessing and bend it out to those that we're trying to love, that we're trying to live with. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. You probably won't be surprised to hear that the Bible has a lot to say about how people should treat one another. It does. And of course, that includes husbands and wives. Pastor Trent is in a series here on Resonate, shooting down some modern marriage myths that we can easily buy into. And last week, we heard the first part of a message that he gave. He wanted his then-engaged and now-married daughter to know that marriage is not primarily for making you happy, but it's designed to help you grow up. Trent is joined by his wife, Andrea, and together, they're showing us how the relationship commands in Romans chapter 12 apply to marriage. Here's Trent Griffith. Here's the first thing we're gonna learn, four things. First thing is this, marriage is a mirror. My marriage is a mirror. Look here in verse nine, he says, let love be genuine. Love doesn't ignore or pretend like marriage is easy. In order for marriage and love to be genuine, you have to be honest about the remaining gaps in our humanity, in our relationship, the unredeemed part of us. Marriage is hard, and yet love can be genuine, even love expressed toward an imperfect person. The second part of verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. And I just, I love this word honor. Honor just means placing high value on someone or something. So bringing everything you can think to honor them. So I I really like to serve So I'd be just like serving all over our house and I'm thinking that he's feeling honored by this. And yet I kept noticing that we just had this disconnect. We were not connecting on this. So finally I just asked him, I said, I really wanna honor you. Can you tell me what can I do to to make you feel honored? And he just said, well, I feel honored when you laugh at my jokes. And here I am exhausting myself trying to serve and he's just wanting me to laugh at his jokes. Oh, she's like running so fast around the house. It's like, I'm funny. <laughs> Sit down. Sit here and tell me how funny I am. And so I would just encourage you just to ask, ask your spouse, how do you hear honor? What can I do to help you hear honor? And don't argue with what they say, just kind of listen. And then if that goes well, you can ask the second question, which is, what am I doing that makes you feel dishonored? Because we do that. And a lot of times we don't even know we're communicating dishonor to our spouses. So my marriage is a mirror. Here's the second thing. My marriage needs a magnificent obsession. 
He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Now you look at those three commands there. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about relationships and all that's vertical. All that has to do with, with spiritual stuff. Exactly. Most people think that marriage problems are relational problems. 90% of marriage problems are not relational problems. They're spiritual problems. You've got to disconnect vertically with the Lord, and therefore you're not able to horizontally, missionally love your spouse. And your spouse does not need to be your obsession. You need something more magnificent than marriage to obsess over. Getting married and staying married is actually the overflow of the obsession we have with the love of God. Loving my spouse is primarily about loving God. And then my marriage becomes an act of worship to God, not dependent upon my spouse's performance. When I am obsessed with the love of God for me, I can risk being imperfectly loved by my spouse because whenever they fail to love me perfectly, it just gives me a greater obsession for the perfect love of God. So verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. I hope you are praying for your spouse. We have got to be praying for our spouses. If you are not, it may be that no one is, no one. And it is a tough world, life is hard. We have got to be covering our spouse in prayer. So for me, I, um, I'll pray for Trent every day. I ask God to give him wisdom, to fill him with the spirit, to give him vision. But I don't wanna just get stuck on the same things, just praying the same things over and over. Um, so what I do is just when I'm finished with my time in the word, whatever God's showed me that day in the scripture that I've prayed for myself, then I just pray it for Trent. I pray it for my kids. I pray it for our staff, for the whole church so that I'm not just praying the same thing over and over. And maybe by the end of the year, I will have prayed like the whole Bible over him or something. So guys, let me, let me suggest to you too, the, the matter of prayer is the greatest tool you have to win the heart of your wife back to you. For you to make a commitment, never to let a 24 hour period of time go by without grabbing your wife by the hand and leading her out loud in prayer. Where she hears you talking to God now, it's not praying for her, it's praying with her. And if she wants to reciprocate, that's great. But you, as the leader, to take the initiative and to talk to God about what's going on in your life. And it doesn't have to be a 45-minute prayer. It doesn't have to have King James language in it. Oh, thou Lord of the intergalactic universe, we beseech thee on behalf of the universe. You know, none of that. Usually when I'm praying for Andrea, it sounds something like this. God, I pray for Andrea that you would give her a better husband. And God, would you do the work in me so that I could love her in a way that reflects your love for both of us? I mean, it's something like that. And to, guys, I'm telling you, if you would do that every day, it would change the atmosphere in your marriage. 
And your performance might not change at all. But as long as she knows you're talking to God and you're committed to following God, she may not be really committed to following you because you're such a loser in that area, but she knows God's not a loser. And if you're following him, she can follow God if you're following him. And so that changes the whole atmosphere. And so we're to be constant in prayer. And you have to have a thing with God if you're going to have a thing with your spouse. Number three, my marriage needs a mission. My marriage needs a mission. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That's talking about working for Christ in the context of a local church. Strapping responsibility on your marriage for maybe the other marriages in the church or some of the children in the church or some of the work or some of the prayer in the church contributing to the needs of the saints. And then obviously you could apply that to financial things, that part of what's happening with the family income is contributing to things outside of the marriage. And that is such a priority. When you invest in things outside of the marriage, now your hearts are drawn together toward the same thing. The last part says, seek to show hospitality. Now that is not talking about throwing a dinner party with your best friends. The word hospitality comes from the root word hospital. In other words, use your marriage to help heal wounded people. Your marriage is like a hospital. Seek to show hospitality and to invest in something outside of your marriage. Earlier, we read verse 10 there, and it's a great verse there. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. And so one of the ways that you do this is by serving not only each other, but people outside of the marriage. And it becomes kind of a competition. Andrea talked about the importance of placing high value on something or someone. And so let's say that uh, Andrea, you know, says something really compliment. Let's say she, she laughs at one of my jokes, okay? And I think, okay, she just honored me. Well, I can't let her outdo me. She's ahead now. <laughs> and so now I race into the kitchen and I, I find some dirty dishes. I start cleaning those dishes in there just as a way of showing honor. And she looks at that and is like, how dare you try to outdo me in showing honor? And she grabs a steak and starts grilling it out there on the back patio. And I'm like, you're not gonna outdo me. And I began to sweetly talk her in romantic ways. And I pick her up and start to head to the bedroom. We better stop at the illustration there. But if we, if we were to simply honor one another within the marriage, that would be the first step missionally to do what God wants us to do. Then we turn from one another and see what needs can we meet outside of this marriage. Again, if all you're ever doing are things face to face, just staring at each other, talking about each other, you are going to cannibalize each other. You've got to focus on something outside of the marriage. This week, 200 adults will be outnumbered by 400 children at Vacation Bible School. Many of those 200 adults are married. They're going to serve together. Brooke and David, in the week before they're married, are going to throw their lives into Vacation Bible School. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a great way to start a marriage. Oh, yes, it is. 
I'm telling you what, they will do shoulder to shoulder, not talking about one another, not talking about marriage, but working together toward a goal outside of the marriage will do more to bind them together than sitting at Starbucks for six hours talking about the intricate details of their lives. And so we need a mission outside of the marriage, obviously the great commission and making disciples and glorifying God in the context of a church is one great way to start. We don't need to jump over our own home, though, in our mission in order to get to the world. Um, A mission outside of our marriage can be kids. It's raising godly kids and just prioritizing family dinner time, prioritizing loving those kids and talking to them about the gospel, Um, prioritizing throwing graduation parties, just creating this unit as a family that we're not jumping over our mission inside our home to get to the world, but we are very missional in our marriage inside our home. We're tag teaming together constantly with this. Yeah, it's one of the reasons we brought Scott into our family. It's like, we just we'll throw another kid in the mix. Here's the fourth thing. My marriage magnifies mercy. My marriage magnifies mercy. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To give a blessing just simply means to give someone something better than they deserve. There are no enduring marriages without mercy. In the lifetime that you will be married, there will be thousands of minor offenses that must be covered by minor mercy. And in a lifetime of marriage, there will be several major offenses that will require you to cover it with major acts of mercy. Where there is no mercy, there is no marriage. Bless those who persecute you. And you may even feel persecuted at times in your marriage. And yet here's what's distinct about a Christian marriage. It covers hurtful things with mercy. Where do you get the power to do that? With a magnificent obsession with God's mercy on you. And so we pour out mercy because we have been shown mercy. We bless because we have been blessed. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter six. This is what he said. He said, if you love someone who loves you, what advantage is that to you? What credit do you get for that? Why do you expect to get like a reward for that? You're loving somebody that loves you. He says, even sinners do that. You don't even have to be a Christian to love somebody that loves you. But then he says this, If you love your enemies, you show yourselves to be the sons of the Most High. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is you bless and you cover and you forgive. Why? Because you have been forgiven. And until you are obsessed with the mercy and the forgiveness and the gospel, you will not have the motivation to bless and to cover the hurts of another. Jesus said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's the mercy of the father that fuels mercy in the marriage. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 
Why? God gives you a marriage partner so you never have to weep alone and you never have to rejoice alone. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. I don't know a whole lot about music, but what I understand is that when you're singing harmony, you have two people singing a different note. That sounds like it would be a disaster. And yet, if they're singing the same lyric in the same rhythm, and they are harmonizing, it makes a beautiful sound. You know what that means? You're going to be married to somebody who is very different than you. And yet you can live in harmony and pursue oneness together. At the end of verse 16, it says, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Marriage's primary purpose is to confront pride and the idol of personal autonomy in my life. The haughtiness and the fact that I think I am wiser than anybody else is confronted in the context of marriage. The reason why people think marriage is obsolete is because they're unwilling to give up their right to personal autonomy. We don't want to lose any freedom. Anything that would take my freedom is seen as a threat. So I want to distance myself from that. And people even that live together is like, yeah, we can kind of share a few things, but you're not taking away my personal autonomy. Why don't you just stop being so haughty and so wise in your own eyes and put yourself under the person that you're with and serve them, even somebody who is lowly. And then verse 17. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And as I'm standing up here listening to Trent and, and even reading that last verse, I'm thinking, this is hard stuff. I mean, we are sitting here telling you to honor, to forgive, to show mercy, and you are all sitting there thinking of some really tough stuff, some hurts, some betrayals, um, maybe being left, maybe having, having that same thing continue in your marriage continually. And you're just sitting here thinking, how do I do this? How do I forgive? How do I honor this person? How do I continue to show mercy? And Trent was just telling us the only way that we can do this is we've got to lift our eyes up and see the blessing see the forgiveness that God has given us, and then we can take that blessing and bend it out to those that we're trying to love, that we're trying to live with. The definition of forgiveness is just refusing to require payment from someone for the damage that they have caused. And so when you're sinned against, when you're hurt, all of a sudden it creates a gap in your life. It creates a hole and you're just stuck with that. What do you do with it? For me, I've just had to go to the Lord and say, carve out some time. I know the kids are going to be busy. I just carve out some time and say, God, I'm not getting up. I'm not leaving your presence until I've forgiven. God, would you work this through in my heart till I've fully forgiven? And then when I can get up and it comes back into my mind, every time it comes back in my mind, I'll have to say, nope, I dealt with that with Jesus. I'm not going down that road in my mind. I'm just stopping it right there. It's been covered. It's been forgiven. But then I'm still left with this gap. I'm still left with this empty space where the hurt was. And what do I do with that? 
You just go back to the Lord again and say, God, you are good. I can't fill this void, but you can. Would you help me to seek your face? Help me to look to you to fill in this gap that has been broken, the thing that's been stolen or taken. Would you do that for me, Lord? Another definition is forgiveness is releasing someone from the debt they owe you and treating them as if they don't owe you anything. We had a situation, um, it's been going on for quite a while, but even this week I was praying about it and talking to the Lord about it. And I, I was just so angry about what was happening and what was going on. And I was kind of telling the Lord what I wanted him to do to fix the debt that this person owed. And the Lord just spoke so sweetly to my heart. And he said, Andrea, you don't know what you think you know. You think you see the whole situation and you think you know exactly what needs to happen. You don't know what you think you know. And as I kept thinking that over, I was like, well, there is one who does know. It's him. God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom, he sees the whole situation perfectly. He knows what needs to happen in that situation. I don't. And I can trust him in that situation for him to do what's best. It leads us to our next verse, verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that is our responsibility to do everything we can do to mend the relationship, to love, to be like Jesus. But there are just some people who do not want the situation resolved. They don't want to be at peace. So we have to do all we can and leave it in the Lord's hands. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. When we think about forgiving or leaving something, many times we think, well, I don't wanna forgive because I don't wanna let that person off the hook. They're not gonna have any consequences or have any responsibility, but really all we're doing is we're just letting them off our hook. And we don't know everything anyway. And we're leaving them on God's hook, the only one who does know it all, the only one who's seen the whole situation and knows exactly how things need to work out. Verse 20 says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. You would think you'd want to starve him. He says, if he's thirsty, give him a drink, refresh him. A lot of times the reason that our spouse is not gracious to us is because they're hungry for love. They're hungry for security. They're thirsty for something that may be outside of their control and maybe they're bringing in their own hurt and because of that, they're being very hurtful. Our job is to serve and to minister to their needs. And let me just say this, to express mercy and to give grace and to forgive does not mean enabling bad behavior and putting yourself in an unsafe situation. That's a completely different issue. Forgiveness is about a vertical transaction between you and God to release someone from the debt that they owe you. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've automatically gained your trust again. That may take years to repair. And so there's nuances here, but for most of us here, we're just simply talking about the day-to-day -day hurts that require blessing and covering. And I need to say all of that before I read this verse. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're like, tell me more about that. Where, where could I get some of those and put those on his head? 
Now, what was that talking about? Listen, uh, back in ancient Israel, the way that they did metal work or like a blacksmith, you would have an intense heat of fire burning coals. They would bring this hard metal and over the burning coals, the heat would begin to soften the metal so that it would become moldable and pliable again. Do you know what he's trying to tell us here? It's your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your acts of kindness that actually affect change in a hard heart. That's what changes him. That's what changes her. It makes them soft because they do not understand how in the world you could be so gracious in response to so much hurt. That's what gets the attention of a very dark world. And that's why he says in verse 21, this is how you overcome evil with good. Now, I want you to stand right now. Everybody's standing. If you are married, I want you to hold hands with your spouse. Would you thank God right now for the mirror that he has given you in your spouse? The tool that God wants to use to show you the unfinished business in your life? And then would you renew your vertical, magnificent obsession with the Lord? Thank Him for His love and His grace, His forgiveness for you. And then would you ask God to give you a mission beyond your marriage? That you would partner together for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, glorifying God. And then finally, that you're marriage would be filled with mercy. Maybe you could even release the hurts, the debts that you feel like your spouse owes you and recommit yourself to love. Father, thank you for the reminder of how loved we are. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us as an expression of your love. God, I pray that that would bend itself out toward our spouses. Give us the humility to see the unfinished business that needs to take place in our own hearts. And by grace, change us through the gift that is marriage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's Pastor Trent Griffith praying for husbands and wives. Without the grace of God, it's impossible for two sinners to live together and not hurt each other deeply. But as the love of Jesus changes us, we can then reach out with His love to each other. Then, together, we can love others beyond each other and beyond our immediate family. One place to practice the one another's of the Bible is at church. If you hang around God's people much at all, you realize this, we're not perfect. We offend each other, we get our feathers ruffled, and sometimes we say things that hurt each other. And so we get to practice humbling ourselves, asking forgiveness, and even forgiving others. It happens in marriage, it happens in church, it happens everywhere. But don't make the mistake of pulling back from church because you've been burned before. Instead, try to see your church as an opportunity to practice your Romans 12 relationship skills that we've been hearing about today. And if you're looking for a solid, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church, be sure to think about Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. That's where Pastor Trent is a senior pastor. 
And if you'd like to visit us for a worship service, just look us up online. Our web address is harvestgranger.org. We meet four times each Sunday. Again, that's harvestgranger.org. Just click where it says worship with us. And be sure to follow us on Facebook by searching for Harvest Bible Chapel Granger. So myth number one was marriage is obsolete. The second myth was marriage will make me happy. See you back here next week for myth number three, which is love will hold your marriage together. Well, thanks for listening today. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that God's word would resonate in your heart and in all your relationships this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a radio and podcast ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel Granger. Visit us online at harvestgranger.org.